Jesus' ministry, him and his disciples realized that it was almost time for Passover. Passover is this massive celebration, feast, festival that happens in Jerusalem where people from all over the the ancient world that were Jews would come to Jerusalem and celebrate and remember God rescuing them from Egypt. So this was a massive thing that was built into what it meant to be a Jewish person. And it was a huge, huge deal. So Jesus and his disciples made the trek down from Galilee, made several stops at different cities, preaching about the kingdom of God, doing healings, performing miracles. They took their time getting there. But as soon as they were about to come into Jerusalem, they were about two miles outside of the city. They stopped at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus told his disciples, okay, stop right here for one second. I'm sure his disciples were like, we're only a little bit away. Why are we stopping now? We're so close. This is the week it's happening. Let's get down there. Let's get in there. And Jesus said, no, wait for one second. I need two of you to go down into the little village right outside of Jerusalem. And there should be a young colt, a young donkey that has never been ridden before. Should be tied up right outside the village. Grab it and bring it back to me. Seems like stealing, right? Jesus is God and a good person. Why would he steal a donkey? We don't know. But he tells his disciples, if anyone asks anything or says anything or asks any questions, just say the Lord needs it. I'm going to use that all the time now. So Jesus tells his disciples (laughs) to go down there. Two of them go down. They get to this this village. They see the colt tied up. They untie it. They're about to take it back when a couple people stop them. And they say, what are you doing? You can't just take that donkey. And they say... Uh, it's for the Lord. The Lord needs it. Maybe it's the providence of God. Maybe it's just the excitement of the Passover season. But the people are like, okay, good answer. So they take the colt back to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is. They drape their cloaks over it. Jesus mounts this donkey. And they begin the the rest of the two-mile trek down into Jerusalem. And as they're approaching Jerusalem, Jesus on this donkey with his disciples behind him, the people in the streets start to see something coming from a distance, someone riding on a donkey. And they're like, who is that? Who could this be? Then someone points out, I think that's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, by this time, has quite the reputation. Pretty controversial. Um, saying things like he was God. Doing healings in the name of God. Freeing people of their sin. Those are things that God did. So he had a, he had a pretty serious name around him. So he walks down into the city on this donkey. People come out to the streets. There's so many people. It's flooded with people from all around the world at the time. And people start throwing their cloaks on the ground as Jesus rides this donkey over them. Complete reverence. Some people grab palm branches and start waving them in front of Jesus. And they yell things like, Hosanna, which means deliver us. It's like a plea, like, please deliver us. Remember, this is the time around Passover, so deliverance and rescue was really on their hearts and on their minds. And the people were yelling, Hosanna, deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our God and our father, Jacob. Deliver us. Hosanna, deliver us. It's quite a weird story. It's hard for us to really know what's going on here. And we've all probably heard this story several times. But today, come at it with new eyes. Put yourself in the position of the disciples. Put yourself in the position of the people that said, hey, don't take that donkey. Who do you think you are? Put yourself in the position of the people throwing their cloaks on the ground or waving 
their palm branches. The people that joined the crowd and said, you've delivered us before, but can you deliver us again now? Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, so this is, like he said, this is a story that many of us have heard a lot, especially around this time of year. We hear the story of Jesus coming in to Jerusalem. Uh, but it's a story that's absolutely dripping uh, with symbolism and significance. And it's added to the fact, as Joe said, that it's happening during Passover. So Passover was a time when they looked back thousands of years ago when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out from under their oppressors. But for the people living in the first century uh, in Jerusalem, where Jesus is performing this this event, Passover had a whole new meaning to them because they understood themselves to be people living under oppression. Not the Egyptians, but instead they were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, longing for God to come and to bring them out. And so when they celebrated Passover, it was really uh, a celebration of asking God, like Joe said, to come and deliver us again. They found themselves in that story. Um, by the way, on Tuesday night, as, as you may remember, I, I really want to encourage you to, to join us as Jews for Jesus comes and we work through some of the significance of the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples uh, and why that mattered in the whole scheme of the Holy Week. But this is, this is the setting where this is taking place, right? So there's this like nationalistic fever pitch. Uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people of the first century, are so longing to get out from under the oppression of the Romans. And Passover is a perfect time to look for that. Uh, but all of the things that are happening here, uh, the Mount of Olives, riding on a colt, the cloak, the palm branches, all of these things uh, have significance within the mind of a first century Jew. So I want to work, work through uh, these things, and I think it will help us to understand exactly what's going on. So first of all, uh, let's talk about the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was uh, on the east side of a hill, just outside of Jerusalem. Well, the Mount of Olives was the hill, uh, but the, Jesus is, is coming in from Jerusalem, right? Or to Jerusalem, coming from the Mount of Olives. Now, this city or this location uh, is really significant because of some of the prophecies that were written about 400 years or so before this event happened. Uh, in the book of Zechariah, we're going to look at a couple passages from Zechariah. I'm going to have them up here. In the book of Zechariah, uh, he talks about the Mount of Olives as a sort of origin point for this person that the Jews were looking forward to called the Messiah. The Messiah is simply a Jewish word that means the anointed one. Uh, in Greek, the word Messiah is translated as Christ. And so whenever we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, we're really calling him Jesus the Anointed One or Jesus the Messiah. And essentially, uh, the Messiah was the one who was going to come and redeem the people, bring them out from under their oppression, kind of like a new Moses figure who would bring the people out from slavery and bring them into a new land. And so uh, check this out. In Zechariah 14, it says this, uh, then the Lord will go out. So this is looking forward from their time, about 400 years before Jesus, looking forward. This says this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come 
and all the holy ones with him. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. So the Mount of Olives is significant because it's going to serve as the origin place for this person who is going to usher in a very physical, real presence of God. And so for a Jew living in Jesus' time, uh, when they see somebody coming from the Mount of Olives with a lot of um, fanfare around it, many of them are going to be connecting the dots to this sort of messianic prophecy. The Mount of Olives is the place where the Messiah, the Savior, came from. And here comes Jesus from the Mount of Olives. Uh, And of course, he doesn't just walk there, right? He comes riding on a colt. So back in the book of Zechariah, again, so a few chapters before what we just read, uh, the prophet Zechariah talks again about the Messiah. And this is what he says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughters Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. He says this. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the full of a donkey. So again, Here's a passage looking forward. This is about 400 years before the time of Jesus. Looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come. And the Messiah is going to come, according to this prophecy, riding on a donkey. Now, Jesus knows this. And Jesus is clearly orchestrating things here to make sure people understand that he is the one that they have been waiting for. And the people... In Jerusalem, or right outside Jerusalem, as they see this happening, we already see them connecting the dots, right? Here comes somebody who's been going around and performing miracles and healing people and freeing people from their sins and all sorts of stuff. Here comes this guy coming from the Mount of Olives on a donkey. This is starting to make sense. (laughs) They're starting to realize that something really important is happening here. And they want to be part of it, right? So the people come out and they meet Jesus as he comes riding into the city. And what do they do? They start to take off their cloaks and lay them on the ground in front of this colt. So as he walks, he's not walking on the bare ground, but he's walking on on this colt. So back to Zechariah here. Right after this passage, it kind of explains the significance here a little bit more. Uh, He says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. And the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the rivers to the end of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. And even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. So these people are laying their cloaks down and they're waving their palm branches, not just because this guy is riding on a colt and that looks cool. Maybe the colt had some nice spots or something on it. But they're doing this because when the Messiah comes, what is he going to do? He's going to bless and he's going to restore. He's going to re-establish Israel as the people that they were back during the time of their great kingdom. Okay? So... As I said, the people are out there. They're, they're excited. They want to be a part of this. And so they start laying their cloaks down on the road as he walks over. And so there's significance here as well. In the Old Testament, uh, there was a time of really sketchy history in the nation of Israel. Uh, when the country was divided, it was essentially in a civil war 
with uh, itself. There was the north and the south, and they were kind of fighting against each other and fighting against other people, and it was not good. Um, but there's this particular place in the book of Second Kings um, where God comes to this guy named Jehu and says, Jehu, uh, the king of the northern part of Israel and the king of the southern part of Israel, they are both terrible dudes. And so I want you to take care of them. And so uh, check out the story. Uh, this is in Second Kings. It says this. Then the prophet, uh, God sends this prophet to this guy named Jehu. This prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut off Ahab, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashah, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, this is great, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground of Jezreel, and no one will bury her. So, happy Easter. Uh, then he opened the door and ran. So, so there's a lot of really great things here and a lot of historical context that we don't have time to get into. But just know Jezebel, anytime you hear someone named Jezebel, that's nothing good's going to come out of that. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab, they were kind of the epitomes of, of bad leadership in Israel. And so their families kind of represent that. And so uh, this prophet comes to Jehu, pours an oil on the head. He anoints him. Uh, he makes him an anointed one or a Messiah. And he says, all right, now, Jehu, you are going to go and you are going to destroy the enemies of the, of the Lord because you are now what? You are now the king of Israel. Okay? Check out what happens next. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked, is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? Uh, he's talking about the prophet of the Lord here. Why did this maniac come to you? He says, you know the man and the sort of things he said. Jehu replied, that's not true. They said, I just love that dialogue. It's like, you're so specific here. Uh, Why couldn't you just cut right to the point? That's not true. They said, tell us. Jehu said, here's what the king, what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Okay, so Jehu basically says, I am now the king over Israel. This maniac anointed me king. Then check this out. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpets and shouted, Jehu is king. So this action of laying down cloaks in front of somebody who is a king, somebody who is a ruler, was a common practice in ancient Israel. And this is just really one example, but it really shows uh, that what these people are doing when they lay their cloaks down in front of this colt with Jesus on it, they're not just trying to make sure his feet don't get dirty. But this is a sign of saying, you are an anointed king. You are the king of Israel. You are an important person. So we have Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives, riding on a colt. As he comes, the people lay down their cloaks, right? So we see that this is not just random events that are happening, but there's deep connection and deep symbolism into what's going on and what the people of Israel were looking forward to. Uh, the last thing here uh, that we've talked about is the palm branches. And I think this is probably one of the most interesting connections here uh, is with the palm branches. Um, 
about 200 years before the time of Jesus. So right between Zechariah, the prophet that we just read, and these events happening, um, there was this great conflict where the nation of Israel rose up against their Greek, uh, the Greek oppressors, these Greeks that were overruling them, and they essentially established their own kingdom for about 100 years. And there's this Hasmonean kingdom. If you ever heard of Judas Maccabee, this is the time when that is happening. Um, so during that time, there were all of these historical books that were written that recorded the events that took place there. Um, and some of these books are called the books of the Maccabees. And so in First Maccabees, which is a historical book um, that was written about 200 years before the time of Jesus, it talks about one of the events that took place during this period. So that was like a cliff note summary of history. Uh, but this is a time when Israel was being freed from the Greeks. And so in First Maccabees, it says this. In the 170th year, the yoke of the Gentiles was removed from Israel. And the people began to write in their documents and contracts in the first year of Simon, the great high priest and the commander of the leader of the Jews. So just to to kind of get our bearings here, uh, what's happening is the Gentiles have been ruling over the Jews. The Greeks have been ruling over the Jews. And under the reign of this guy, Simon... In the 170th year, uh, the yoke of the Gentiles were broken. In other words, the Jews were brought out from under their oppressors. Okay? We all, we all track in here? So, uh, it goes on and says this. Those who were in the citadel at Jerusalem were prevented from going in and out to buy and sell in the country. So, they were very hungry, and many of them perished from the famine. So, basically, Simon walled up the city of Jerusalem, so that the Gentiles couldn't get food, right? The Gentiles had conquered Jerusalem. Simon barricades them in. They were very hungry. Uh, Many of them perished. Then they cried to Simon to make peace with them, and he did so. But he expelled them from there and cleansed the citadel, or the tower in Jerusalem, from its pollutions. So he goes into Jerusalem, and he gets rid of all the unclean people. He gets them out of there. And on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it, or they entered into Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. And he strengthened the fortifications of the Temple Hill alongside the citadel. And he and his men lived there. So, less than 200 years, or I'd say about 200 years, before this event is happening in Jerusalem, where Jesus comes riding in on the donkey. So this is still relatively recent history. There was this moment where this guy named Simon came into the city. He cleared out anything that was unclean. Uh, He got rid of them, and he reestablished Jerusalem as this main central city of God. And the people welcomed him into the city by singing, by playing harps, by waving palm branches at him. So as Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives on this colt, the people lay their cloaks in front of him. They begin waving these palm branches. The people in the audience, the people in the crowd there, There's no question that what they're doing uh, is making these assumptions that Jesus is coming just like Simon came. 
Because when Simon the high priest came, he ridded Israel of their enemies. And so here comes Jesus, and they're hoping you are going to do the same thing that Simon. You are Simon 2.0. You are going to reestablish us. All of the things that are being put together in this event of Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives are just dripping with significance and symbolism that people observing this would have been making these connections. And Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's orchestrating this in a way to make them make those connections. He wants these people to see him coming and say, wow, this guy is coming as the anointed one. This guy is coming as the king. This guy is coming to reestablish us. So Jesus is ticking all the boxes, right? They have this list of requirements to be Messiah. Riding on a donkey, check. Mount of Olives, check. King, check. Can do cool things, check, right? All of the things are happening that Jesus is going to act just like Simon, just like one of these great messiahs. And what does Simon do when he gets to Jerusalem? He goes into the temple complex. He gets rid of all the people that are unclean, so all of the Gentiles. And he says, this is now God's house again. And now, once again, we are going to be the Jewish people who rise up against our oppressors. This is what the audience is expecting to happen. So, let's go back to Mark 11 and see how this works out. So, in Mark 11, where where Joe uh, read to us, or told us this story, um, in verse 12, Jesus walks into the does this whole thing, going to the city. He goes in Jerusalem. He looks around, and he goes back for the night. The next day, though, in verse 12, um, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem. He sees this fig tree. There's this whole cursing of a fig tree, which is tied into this story, but I want to focus on what happens next. In verse 15, he says this, or Mark says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple court. So, okay, (laughs) We're good here, right? Just like Simon, Jesus gets to the temple. He goes in. Here it comes. Here's where Jesus is going to drive out the Gentiles and reestablish it. He gets to the temple courts and begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. And as he taught them, he said... It is not, or is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed, or maybe a better translation would be confused by his teachings. What's going on here? Jesus is coming as the Messiah. He's going into the temple. This should be the point where he gets rid of all of the Gentiles and reestablishes Israel as the place to be, the people to be. But instead, he goes in there, and he does probably the thing that was least expected. If they had a list of things that we don't expect the Messiah to do, uh, it'd be like, I don't know, be a Mariners fan, uh, clear out the temple, right? It'd It'd be right on there. But Jesus does the most unexpected thing possible by actually confronting and throwing out the people who were running the religious system. In other words, Jesus is disrupting Jewish culture, not Gentile culture. Jesus is criticizing the Jewish leadership, not the Gentile leadership. 
This is where things start to get really confusing to people. Because they've seen all of this action. They've seen him coming in from Mount of Olives. They've seen all of this stuff. This has to be the moment when he reestablishes us. But instead, he confronts us. Instead, he challenges the religious leaders, the people that we respect, the people that are leading our nation. He challenges and rejects them. What is going on here? Completely unexpected end to this story it was all heading in this direction then all of a sudden jesus takes it on a far right turn but here's the thing if any of these people had been following jesus's ministry over the last few years this probably wouldn't have been that unexpected after all jesus made a habit of consistently confronting the religious system of israel because they had created a religion that was founded upon, or at least had become, based upon this idea of creating these boundaries and these walls in which God was only allowed to work when people or he was here. In other words, God only blesses those people who do the right sacrifices and are doing the right things. God only loves the people who are constantly ceremonially clean. And so if you're not, then you're on the outside. God only cares about people who are Jewish ethnically and everybody else is there. God only does this. God only cares this. God only, 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 only. This is the way uh, that many of the first century Jews understood God and understood the religion. Uh, that he was essentially a God to be manipulated and he only works when we do this. And what is Jesus doing here? <laughs> Throughout his ministry and in this moment, Jesus is confronting that and he's flipping that notion on its head and saying, look, your boxes that you're trying to cram God in, they don't work. Your boundaries in which you're trying to build up to keep God out or in, those things are not welcomed here. And so by confronting the religious system, Jesus is confronting this mindset that says, We decide where and when God works and acts. Jesus is flipping on its head this idea that we get to decide how God will work. Jesus says that's not how it happens. (laughs) Because I am God, I am the Messiah, and I don't fit in your boxes. In fact, I reject all of this. So there's a lot of significance in this story and in what Jesus is doing, but I think Uh, one of the the main points that we want to gather and we want to take home here is that Jesus' action after he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was completely unexpected because it didn't fit within the first century Jewish understanding of how the Messiah should act. So for us, I think that perhaps it is worth asking ourselves the question, have we in any way created boxes have we created walls in which we have said god only works in this confined area god only responds to people who do this and this and this god only fits within our system of understanding now there's a lot of ways that we can we can approach this and 
I don't think doctrine is really the only way, but I think that maybe that, that is worth looking at. Um, are the things that we believe about God, are they so firm? Are we holding them so tightly that we would not be willing to shift them if for some way we were proven wrong based on Scripture? But I think maybe more realistically for a lot of us, this has to do with how uh, we interact with ourselves. Uh, Do you ever think, maybe you are someone who hasn't read your Bible in six weeks, months, years, whatever. Uh, Maybe you haven't prayed in, in a while. And you think to yourself, well, there's no use really coming back now because God would not accept me, right? God, I'm, I'm not really at that place where God would want to hear from me because I've been over here for so long. Uh, have you created this box that says God will only listen to the people who <laughs> have been there for the last few years? Because if you are saying that, I think that you've created an unhealthy box, something that Jesus would flip right over <laughs> and say, that's not how it works. Maybe as you, you, you look at your life and you look at kind of the situation that you're in and you say, I can't be used to do anything impactful in the world because I'm just a mom. I'm just a guy who works, you know, nine to five or second shift or whatever. I'm just uh, in, you know, in the later stage of my life. I don't have any influence. I'm just this. I'm just this. And we've said, God can't use me because of these things. What you're essentially doing is saying God only fits in this box of expectations. And what Jesus is essentially saying is flip those things over because that's not how it works. In what ways have you created boundaries and boxes in which you are trying to contain God? The story of Palm Sunday is that God doesn't work by our expectations. The ways of God are different than the ways that you think they're going to be. Maybe if we kind of broaden our scope a little bit, maybe there are certain groups of people, whether it's because of their religious beliefs or ethnic beliefs or um, social beliefs or whatever it is, that you in some ways have sort of decided those people, right, we even maybe use those terms, those people, they're nice and I'll love them and all, but they're kind of, something really has to happen in order for God to care or love them as well. Maybe you would never say that, but you think that. <laughs> and if somebody asked you, you'd say, oh, no, 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 I love the sinner, I just hate their sin. Yeah, that's good, but maybe you don't actually. Maybe you do actually think that they're beyond <laughs> If you've created a box, a line, a wall, 